Did you hear that? No. My stomach made a noise. Uh, fun. This is how it went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the intro. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, homies. I'm Katie. I'm Sydney. And this is Something Sick. What's up? Hey. Welcome back. Hey. <laughs> Just getting very low energy. No, I have energy. Okay. I have things I want to talk about. Okay. First of all, Taylor Swift's new music. <laughs> I knew it was going to be Taylor Swift. <laughs> Everyone, listen to this episode and then go listen to Red Taylor's version. <laughs> <laughs> you said listen to this first. first yeah. Because <laughs> you'll be sad probably by the end of this. So, so go cry? Yeah. <laughs> after this but like listen to taylor swift to make yourself cry some more okay and get emotional it's an emotional sunday for everyone i guess great i love that you didn't offer a solution to being Go listen. i mean you can always listen to eh, the last song of the album is pretty upbeat great you'll, you'll get there you'll great. get there just go through it yeah <laughs> you're also committing people to several hours <laughs> and <laughs> great <laughs> anyways Actually, no, the last song of the album is not uplifting. It's the 10 minute version of All Too Well. So, so one, of the, uh, one of the other <laughs> vault songs is more uplifting. Anyway, second thing I want to talk about Hill House and Bly Manor. Yes. We've been watching. We're us. very late to the game on them because we don't like, we've never really, either, neither of us has liked spooky TV shows and movies that aren't like ghost hunting. Yeah. And I don't, neither of us like jump scares. Yeah. But so, we persevered yeah and i have been loving it yeah i liked hill house more than i liked bly manor yeah but bly manor is still interesting and yes i have to think a lot it's very like psychological and like i'm very confused all the time but like enjoying it (laughs) yes everyone should go watch um there are definitely times during hill house that i fully screamed yeah i don't i definitely jumped a couple times but you were the only one that screamed. <laughs> I screamed but you twice. scared me <laughs> but anyway i think you made it scarier for me by screaming great you're welcome <laughs> ambiance yeah and i have a third thing i want to talk about okay the travis scott stuff oh my gosh yeah it's terrible it's, sorry to bring the mood down yeah we're gonna have to bring it down anyway I mean, yeah but I wanted, I realized that we didn't talk about this after our last episode. Mm-hmm. It's insane. It's horrific. <laughs> the fact, the fact that they were all saying we had no idea when they had, when they oh. posted videos of an ambulance and stuff Yes, and they were like resuscitating people while he was like right over them. Oh yeah. There's, he knew. Oh, it makes me so mad. And he's just like fostered a culture of that's what his shows are like. Yeah. And it's terrible. Yeah. So anyway, no one listened to him. And no, there's a thing on Spotify that you can go on his profile and click do not play this artist. Good. And it keeps him from getting money. Everyone so go do, do that. that. Yeah. So anyway. So and prayers go out to the families yes. of everyone that was affected because and people I've are seen still so like many, in hospitals yeah, and stuff. So many like things of people that were there firsthand and it's it's awful. so sad. Yeah. So. People tried to stop it and Yeah. Shout out to them for Yes. Like I saw like so many stories of like people being like straight up heroes. Yeah. That did not need to do that. They were just there no. to see a concert. Yeah. So and they were just as much in danger as anyone yeah. else. So 
but yeah. Anyway, so it is so heartbreaking. Yeah, but yeah, it's freaking awful. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. <laughs> um, is that all? Yeah, those are my three things that I thought of. Unless you have anything. No, okay. I don't think so. Well, so the vibe is already sad. So we're going to make it even more sad. Katie told me she cried. No, no, I, no, no. This. There was one thing I wrote down that made me feel like I was going to cry. Great. I don't know if it'll make you feel that way. It just in the I middle mean, it's of probably every- not going to make me feel good. No, 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 but, no. It's sad. Okay. So we are talking about the Texas Bell Tower Sniper, which my therapist reminded me <laughs> and told me about. Shout out to Katie's therapist. She's about to have a baby. <laughs> um, I don't know very much about this one. I didn't either. And like, I'm excited, not excited, but like interested. I'm interested to hear about it. I was telling Katie when she told me that this was what she was going to talk about. That the only thing I think about is that one episode of Criminal Minds. Yeah. I think it's like, I, I don't, they talked about this case oh, yeah, during sure. it. So yeah. I just like think of that. But. Yeah. I honestly wasn't, I was kind of worried it'd be one where there was like not a lot of information. Like mm-hmm. I was like, maybe it's not worth it to be the one I do. Like I was like, I mean like eventually, but I was like, yeah. maybe it's not like a by itself episode. Yeah. But it is. It's very long. This is a lot of notes that I took. Okay. <laughs> so are you ready? to talk about so. something sad yeah so, that's our new podcast yeah, something sad. something sad <laughs> so on august 1st 1966 charles whitman opened fire indiscriminately on the campus of the university of texas at austin and he killed 14 and some places say 15 because one of the people that he injured died a while later mm-hmm. so 15 technically and he injured 31 others in 96 minutes that's a long time. Yeah. It was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in the U.S. history at that time. Mm-hmm. So it breaks my heart that more people yeah. have, like, it's, that's happened and that's been happened worse. so many more times. Yeah, and have been, like, more people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just the overview. Yeah. And now we're going to go back. And okay. we're going to talk about Charles Whitman's personal life. Great. Yeah. So... Charles Joseph Whitman was born on June 24th, 1941 in Lake Worth, Florida to Margaret and Charles Aldolphus Whitman Jr. (laughs) So they're both Charles Whitman, him and his dad. And I am going to talk about his dad. So either just say Charles's dad or I wrote down Charles A and Charles J and because Charles A is the dad. Okay. So I just have to, I was trying to figure out a way to Charles Sr., but his name is, the dad's name is Charles Whitman Jr. The dad is Jr. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I was confused. But I guess we could just say senior, but it's like not anyway, right. Yeah. it doesn't matter. <laughs> so Charles, the guy we're talking about, he was the oldest of three boys. And his father had been raised in an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia, and then married his Charles's mom, Margaret, when she was 17. So they were young parents. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately... Charles' dad was a very strict man, and he expected perfection from his wife and sons. But probably not from himself, because they never do. No, and he was physically and emotionally abusive, so to all all four of them. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, Margaret Whitman, she was Roman Catholic, and she raised her boys that way. They always went to Mass with her, and they were all altar boys at the Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church in Lake Worth, Florida. Um, Charles was often described as well-mannered, and he like didn't really lose his temper a lot as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like He was a pretty good kid. Um, he was very smart, and he... I don't know how accurate this is, but it, it was in a book, so may seem might accurate. But he was okay. tested for his IQ when he was six, and they reportedly figured out that his IQ was one thirty nine. Like the world's highest IQ is one ninety eight, and the average is between one eighty five and one fifteen. Okay, so he's six, and his IQ yeah. was that high. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, um, his parents were obviously very encouraging about him doing well academically, but if he ever slipped up, then his dad would physically discipline him. That's terrible. Can you please silence your cell phone? Hey, um, I'm sorry. I'm getting work emails. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) The buzzing is distracting to me. (laughs) Anyways, when Charles turned 11, he became a Boy Scout and eventually became the youngest Eagle Scout at the time when he turned 12. Like in his troop or? I don't know. Didn't say. Okay. In general. Ever. Nationally. I mean, that is young to be an Eagle Scout. So who knows? Someone's probably been younger than Mm -hmm. a better person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Charles was also very talented at the piano around that age too. Unlike our neighbor. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He got a job of handing out the newspaper at that age too. Okay very yeah accomplished yeah i don't think that lasted super long but (laughs) um so some more not great stuff about his dad is that his dad was a firearms enthusiast and collector and he taught his three sons to clean maintain and shoot weapons and he would take them hunting a lot and charles pretty good at everything so he became good at that and his father reportedly said this about charles quote charlie could plug the eye out of a squirrel by the time he was 16 (laughs) Uh, what a thing to be proud of yeah like it's fine yeah it's and like gun safety is important to teach your kids yeah and stuff but but like if your kid becomes a little too excited about a gun yeah that's the thing i don't like i don't understand gun enthusiasts no like if you like going hunting that's cool yeah that's fine yeah Uh, but it's not my thing like why do you need a collection yeah i don't like that Mm -mm. (laughs) Why are you guys using all of them and, like, testing them all out? Yeah. Anyway. So, moving on with Charles' life. (laughs) He started high school at St. Anne's High School in West Palm Beach on September 1st, 1955. He was pretty popular, I think. Like, most people thought he seemed pretty normal Mm -hmm. on the outside. Yeah. Um, By October of that year, it's like a month later, he bought a Harley Davidson motorcycle with the money he saved from passing out the newspaper. So he's making good money passing out the newspaper. Yeah. Got a motorcycle. Okay. (laughs) Um, Fast forward through high school. He graduated in June 1959 and he was seventh in his class of 72 students. Okay. Pretty smart. Mm hmm. Um, a month later, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps without telling his dad. Yeah. He and just wanted to get way. out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a fam- he talked to like a family friend and he told the family friend that the reason he enlisted was because a month, the month before his father had like beaten him and thrown him into their family pool oh. and because Charles had come home drunk at some point. And so it's like, part of me is like, I kind of, 
the kid graduated high school. He was probably hanging out with his friends. Yeah, like, I mean, that's a typical yeah. thing that high schoolers do. Yeah. Like, so it's like, man, this kid, yeah, this guy awful. had like no shot of like being nurtured really yeah. <laughs> like well, but he also did really bad things. So mm-hmm. I don't feel that bad for him. There are plenty of people who have terrible childhoods and don't do this. Yep. So, so yeah. So when he f- enlisted, he was assigned an 18-month tour of duty with the Marines at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, and he left on July 6th, 1959. And he was literally on his way to like his first location, and his dad still didn't know he had left. And when his dad found out, he tried calling the federal government to get his enlistment canceled. What the heck? Which, that's not how it works. No. He was 18, first like, of all. Like, he can make that decision. Yeah. It's just like, that's just... And also, the government's not going to be like, oh, you want your kid back? Yeah. That's not how like- <laughs> enlisting works, no. I don't think. So, yeah. That didn't work. And then, during that first 18 months, from 1959 to 1960, Charles earned the Marine Corps Expeditionary Medal and a sharpshooter's badge. He had gotten 215 out of 250 points on a marksmanship test, and he was very exceptionally skilled at shooting quickly at moving targets over long distances. So, yeah, he has the skills for a bad person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it's like, uh, uh, that could be used for good things too, like, like, yeah the FBI needs snipers and stuff. Like, there are... For people like him. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's just like... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So after this first round of service, he applied for a scholarship program with the Navy and Marine Corps, and he wanted to go to college and then become a commissioned officer. And so he started with enrolling in a preparatory school in Maryland, and he was approved. He like did really well in their entrance exams and everything, and he studied mathematics and physics there. And then he transferred to study mechanical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin, UTA. And he started that program on September 15th, 1961. But he actually didn't start well in school there. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he always had some tendencies that were like, you're really smart, but you're not doing well in school. Yeah. And that definitely started to show more in college, which I feel like happens to a lot of gifted students. Being smart does not mean you like test well. Yeah. Because school does not necessarily. No. Yeah. So. Um, he did have a lot of hobbies at this point, though, that he, like, did put a lot of energy into. Okay. Like, scuba diving. Not sure where he did that in Texas, to be honest. Okay. Um, karate, gambling, and hunting. <laughs> so, hmm. started off random, and then got yeah. not good. <laughs> it's like, you you should stick with scuba diving. Yeah. Sure. I don't think that would have hurt anyone. Pretty harmless. Yeah. Would have been fun. But no. Had to go with the others. Yeah. And karate, I mean, like, all of those by themselves in an innocent way. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, pretty early on in school, Charles and a couple of his friends at the university were reported to the police for poaching a deer, and a witness had gotten their license plate number, and they were arrested when they were caught butchering said deer in his dorm room shower. Ew. Yeah. He had to pay a fine of $100, which today is about $900. But they were literally butchering a deer in in a shower of the dorm. That makes me grossed out ever living in a dorm. How did they get the deer in the dorm? (laughs) I don't know. It's the 1960s, but come on. To be fair, I mean, college kids. I'm sure. (laughs) I mean, there's (laughs) not to that level. Yeah. But like, I can imagine guys bringing weird stuff in. Oh, yeah. 
and boys are probably just like <laughs> guys being dudes <laughs> they're like hey yeah <laughs> they're probably helping them keep it from the ras like i know yeah so okay that's gross yeah charles's college and college friends and acquaintances said he was a practical joker which no one else really said that about him in school before. So that seems like a new thing. And they also said he did start to make some odd and morbid comments around them. One of his peers in 1962 said that Charles said this, quote, a person could stand off an army from atop of the main building's clock tower before they got to him. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a couple times where I think he said some stuff where I'm like, Maybe you guys should have paid more attention. Yeah. That is the one of the first ones. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's so crazy, especially in like today's world. Yeah. I feel like we would have maybe people would have paid more attention. Yeah. But I mean, I say that and people still don't pay attention to the many signs that have like been shown for mass shooters. Yeah. But it's like they didn't have any context for things like this happening. Yeah. I think I would still be say to someone, like even if it was just a friend, be like, mm-hmm. You will not believe what and be like this dude said. Weird, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. is he okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe his head is messed up. So, also that year, 1962, we're moving in a different direction from that. Okay. Charles met Kathleen at the age of 20, and Kathleen Francis Lazner is who he eventually married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she, she was two years younger than him and an education major, and. She was his first, like, real serious girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And apparently he had dated an actress named Deanna Dunigan, Dunigan. And I looked it up, like, right before he dated Kathleen. And she was in an episode of Psych. <laughs> That's the only Queen. thing I recognize her from. <laughs> but Love that. Yeah. But anyway, I just put that in because she was in Psych. Mm-hmm. So Charles and Kathleen dated for five months. And then they got engaged on July 19th of 1962 and then they got married less than a month later on august 17th 1962 my brother's birthday (laughs) shout out (laughs) oh my gosh uh in a catholic ceremony in kathleen's hometown needville texas okay yeah the wedding date was actually charles's parents 22nd wedding anniversary (laughs) so Uh, (laughs) yeah i wouldn't want to commemorate that no like your parents aren't they don't like each other no they're still together at this point. Though. Yeah. So um, Charles' whole family came from Florida to Texas. One of his brothers was his best man. And one of his friends officiated the wedding, mm-hmm. which I don't actually understand since it was a Catholic wedding. But I don't know how that works. Me neither. <laughs> but anyway, um, Kathleen's family did approve of Charles. And they thought he was aspirational and smart and a handsome young man, which okay. he was okay looking. I'm going to look him up. Yeah. He's like a blonde. He's like blonde, clean cut military dick guy yeah that tracks yeah what's his name charles whitman okay yeah for the for the 60s yeah not my type (laughs) well no not your type at all okay yeah it looks like any like army dude that you would see honestly yeah so back at school charles got a bit better during his next couple of semesters after getting married Mm -hmm. but the marines said that his grades were not good enough for them to keep giving him his scholarship Mm. And then he was called back to active duty in North Carolina by February 1963. And he stayed at this Camp Lejeune, I think, for the rest of his five-year enlistment. Mm-hmm. He was automatically promoted in rank to Lance Corporal. I don't know any of what okay. that means. But he was pretty unhappy that he had to leave school without finishing. Mm-hmm. Like, he was 
pretty resentful of the Marines at that point. And he was really highly regarded, though, as a Marine and really good at it. But he was still really struggling with his gambling mm-hmm. at this point. And he was actually court-martialed, put on trial in military court for gambling, usury, possession of a personal firearm on base, and threatening another Marine over a $30 loan with $15 interest. Um, yeah, none of those are good. No. That's about $300 today. He, like, threatened someone over that. And that happened in November 1963. I feel like... Wait, so he was marshaled. Was he discharged or no? Not yet. Because I feel I feel like using a personal firearm, mm-hmm. like on base, like all of that, I feel like that should be cause to discharge someone. Yeah. I can tell you what he did get. His, I have a sentence. Okay. He was given a 30-day sentence of confinement and a 90-day sentence of hard labor. And he was demoted to private. Okay. But that's it. He was still a Marine. Confinement. I think that just means... Like, stay on base. You yeah, can't or something like that. Interesting. Or, like, stay in your, like, house arrest, basically, kind of, you know? Very interesting. Yeah. But that's all he got for all of that. But he was still there. So now we're going to kind of start talking about more of his stressors, as if mm-hmm. he doesn't sound stressed already. Yeah. But we're getting there. So while he was waiting for his trial, he started to write in a diary that he titled Daily Record of C.J. Whitman. And he was writing about his upcoming trial and his disrespect for the Marine Corps and just like daily things of his Marine, of his military life. And then he also started to write about his wife and his family and like usually spoke really highly of Kathleen. Mm-hmm. Like he really sounded like he loved her. And he also would write a lot about becoming financially independent from his dad, mm-hmm. which I didn't know at first. I was like, oh, didn't know he was still under his dad's yeah. money. So. He was finally honorably dis- he was honorably discharged okay. from the Marines in December 1964, and then he went back to UTA for school. But this time, it was to study architectural engineering. Okay. So he went from mechanical engineering to architectural. I don't know how different those are. Me neither. I don't I know, know nothing. Sometimes I don't know if I know what engineering. Is. <laughs> Same. Like I kind of know, but I have no idea in what goes brain, in. In my brain, it's just. Like numbers geometry yeah <laughs> i don't know which i like math but i haven't had to really do hard math I in do a not long have time that kind of engineering brain no so anyway this is what he was studying now right so he did have some jobs while he was doing all that so but he had quite a few jobs <laughs> in a very short amount of time so he started working with a lot of financial stuff which doesn't go with his major but he worked as a bill collector and then he worked at the Austin National Bank as a bank teller. And then in January 1965, which is soon after he was discharged, he worked as a t- he worked for the Texas Highway Department as a traffic surveyor. And Kathleen started to work as a biology teacher at Lanier High School. And at that time, Charles started to volunteer with as a scout leader for Austin Scout Troop number five. So he's working, doing lots of jobs, becoming a scout leader. I know. Ugh. Yeah. So Charles did start to express a few tendencies that he kind of learned and inherited from his dad and when he hit Kathleen on two occasions, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, he like confessed that to his friends and he was like, I hate myself for doing this. I'm afraid of being like my dad. And he wrote a lot about this in his diary and like how much he wanted to be a better husband and not abusive. Um, so, okay, yeah, it's like, he clearly like felt remorse about it, but, but two he times. also did it twice. Yeah. yeah. If you do it one time and feel like, rem- ha- feel remorse, but then you do, do it again. It. Yeah. 
Yeah. Not really the same thing. Yeah. So speaking of his parents, his mom, Margaret, announced that she was going to divorce Charles, her Charles's dad. Yeah. Um, in May 1966 because of physical abuse. And because of that, Charles, the son, drove down to Florida to help his mom pack up her things, and he mm-hmm. wanted to bring her to Texas with him. Mm-hmm. And he was pretty afraid that his dad was going to become violent when his mom was leaving. And so he had a police officer come and, like, stay watch outside and, like, yeah. be prepared while they were packing mm-hmm. up the car. He did not come and stop them, though. So Margaret Good. did move to Texas, and she got her own place, and she got a job working in a cafeteria. And... But that didn't really, sorry, not aunt, but that didn't really stop Charles's dad from like pursuing her. He spent like $1,000, which is about 85000 today or 8500 sorry, 8500 like, not that much, yeah. 8500 today on phone calls trying to get Margaret to come back. And he would also call his son, Charles, mm-hmm. to try and convince him to convince his mom to come back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he was trying to manipulate the whole situation. Yeah. So because of all of the stress with jobs, volunteering, his parents, Charles started to use amphetamines. Ooh. Not a good thing, but he started no. to use that. And he started, sorry, I had a hiccup. He started to get really severe headaches and they just kept getting worse. Because of the amphetamines or? No. Okay. I don't, well, par- probably partially, but we'll talk about it later. Okay. There's other reasons. There's another reason why I think he was getting headaches. Did so he have we'll t- a tumor? Is that a thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. I remember that. Yes. Anyway. Yes, he did. But we're not talking about that for a while. So Sorry to spoil it. (laughs) No, it's okay. My therapist told me about that before I read the case too. So, Which is why she brought it up. Mm -hmm. She was like, it's very interesting. Yeah. But anyway. So now we're going to kind of get into what happened before the shooting. Okay. Because some things, some not good things happened before it. So prior to the shooting and the days leading up to it, Charles began to buy some supplies he bought binoculars, a knife, and some spam from 7-Eleven. Okay. Spam. That sounds like the grossest thing he could buy for that. So yeah. the day before the shooting, on July 31st, 1966, Charles picked Kathleen up from her summer job as a telephone operator, and then they went to have lunch with his mom, Margaret, at the cafeteria she worked at, which was really close to the campus of the university. And then later that day, around 4 p.m., Charles and Kathleen went to their friend's apartment and left there around 5.50 p.m. so that Kathleen could make it for her shift, which was 6 to 10 p.m., back okay. at the telephone operating place. After she was there and he went home, Charles started to write a suicide note around 6.45 p.m. And this is just part of what he wrote. So he said, quote, I do not quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I do not really understand myself these days. I'm supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, in parentheses, I cannot recall when it started. I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. Mm. But he didn't, like, specify what he was doing. Yeah. He just said all that. And he also wrote in his his note, that he wanted an autopsy done on his body after he died so that if there was a biological cause for why he started to have the headaches and for his actions, he like wanted the people mm-hmm. to know. Yeah. So it's like, that's weird. It's like, if you know that something's wrong with you, yeah. go to a doctor. Yeah. Okay. He did go to doctors. Okay. So I don't quite know how nothing ever got found out about that. 
but and we'll talk about his doctors later yeah, okay that's like more towards the end also because i didn't really come out until investigators started looking at the case mm-hmm. but it's just like it's, i don't know yeah how it's weird that? yeah so he also wrote about his decision to kill his mother and kathleen yeah yeah I knew that was coming mm-hmm. he said he wasn't exactly sure why that he like why he did not believe or why he was doing this. But he said he did not believe that his mother, quote, ever enjoyed life as she is entitled to, and that Kathleen had, quote, been as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. Um, he wrote that he wanted to save them from the embarrassment of what he was about to do and so that they could be relieved of the suffering of the world. And then I also found a quote that was more specific about that, like actually what he wrote. Mm-hmm. And so he said, quote, I don't want this about Kathleen. I don't want her to have to face the embarrassment my actions would surely cause her. I truly do not consider this world worth living in and am prepared to die and I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. Similar reasons provoked me to take my mother's life. So, Ugh. he said all of this, but he did not mention anything about planning an attack the next day. Yeah. So, he just kept saying my actions, which is just weird it's very strange so a little after midnight on august 1st 1966 charles drove over to his mom's home and killed her and put her on the bed and covered her with sheets and did he shoot her no okay um i saw that it says that some people still are disputing what happened but officers believe that he had like rendered her unconscious and then stabbed her in the heart that's very personal yeah yeah and you, she's looking. I mean, I guess she was probably asleep. Yeah. But you looked at your mother's face while you did that. That's, ugh. Yeah. He left a handwritten note next to her body. And this is part of it. Quote, to whom it may concern, I have just taken my mother's life. I am very upset over having done it. However, I feel that there is a he- there is a heaven, or that if there is a heaven, she is definitely there now. I am truly sorry. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I loved this woman with all my heart. There's doubt. <laughs> yeah. You killed her. Yeah. Yeah. So, to whom it may concern. Why? Yeah. That's absurd. Yeah. So, after this, Charles went home and stabbed Kathleen three times in the heart while she slept. Three times. Three times. Yep. And then he covered her body with a sheet like he did to her to his mom's. And then he went back to working on his note, his suicide note. And it was like typed so far mm-hmm. and then he wrote on the side of the page with his with his pen and wrote friends interrupted 8166 monday 3 3 a.m both dead in all caps oh my gosh yeah and then he continued on with his note writing it down instead of typing it and he wrote this Quote, I imagine it appears that i brutally killed both of my loved ones i was only trying to do a quick thorough job if my life insurance policy is valid, please pay off my debts and donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. Give our dog to my in-laws. Tell them Kathy loved Scoshi very much. If you can find in yourselves to grant my last wish, cremate me after the autopsy. Interesting. Yeah. Take my money. Like, it's a very obscure, like, things to say. So He's like writing a will in it. Yeah like yeah he did some more stuff to leave behind he wrote personal notes for his two brothers and then left written instructions um to request people to develop the last two rolls of film that he had 
I don't know what was on them. Don't know why he wanted that done. Yeah. But he left those instructions. None of this, like, it. none of it makes sense. No. It's just like. Which is why they're like, it's mental health and like a tumor. But that's, people aren't sure about that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, is he just a terrible person? Yeah. Yeah. And it's well, all then, over the place. And yeah. He's like, I did these things for them, but I loved them. And I, it just really made me mad when he was like, it all makes me mad. Yeah. But when he's like, I'm ready, I'm prepared to leave the world. And it's like, they're, they weren't. Yeah. And it's like, you don't have to take 15 people with you. Like, no. Plus that wasn't including the mom and yeah. grandma. So 17. Yeah, and mom. Like, it's like, yeah. you don't have to take people with you. Yeah. So. And like, just go get help. Yeah. And he, it seemed like he did try to get help. Yeah. But I think there more, other people could have done something and he mm-hmm. could have tried hard. And been yeah. like, I really think something's wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, and that if you know something's wrong with you, then you could choose your actions and not do something. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Like he's, he yeah. was aware enough to know that this wasn't normal. Yeah. So it's like. Keep trying and to ask for help then. Yeah. Like if you know that your actions, like if he was truly like, like the argument for insanity in like insanity cases mm-hmm. is whether or not like the people knew what they were doing. Yeah. He clearly knows what he's he know, doing. He knows what he was doing. Yeah. So, okay. Yep. Um, the last thing Charles wrote was on an envelope and he wrote thoughts for the day and then put some things in it, like wrote some stuff down, put it in the envelope, about things he was like ashamed of inside of it. Okay. And then also on the outside of the envelope, he wrote 8166. I never could quite make it. These thoughts are too much for me. And that was the last thing he wrote. Okay. Around 545 that morning, Charles called Kathleen's boss to say that she was sick and couldn't come in that day. And then five hours later, he did the same thing for his mom's boss. And then he wrote, I think he wrote another journal entry and people said the way he wrote about it was like, he's already killed them. It's in the past tense. Like, yeah, it's already happened. So later that morning, Charles rented a dolly to like carry his equipment and he cashed some bad checks at the bank around about like $250, which is about 2000 today. Mm-hmm. And then he went to the hardware store and bought a, okay, I don't know anything about guns. So okay. I'm about to say some gun stuff that I don't know anything about. Okay. But if it says 0. .30, is that a thirty caliber? Yeah. Okay. I don't know what you think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guys, I could sound really stupid saying all of this. So we're going to go with it. Yeah. There's but it's a, a point good thing in front. That, yeah. Because yeah. a twenty two is a point two two. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. But I'm going to sound like an idiot probably for the next few minutes. And I'm just okay with that because it means I don't like know anything about guns. And yeah. I'm okay with that. People knowing that about me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... He bought a 30 caliber universal M1 carbine, which is, I think, is similar to a rifle. Okay. I, th- I mean, that would based make sense. on looks, sniper. <laughs> that's what it looks like. Um, and then he bought two ammunition magazines and eight boxes of ammunition. And he told the cashier who checked him out that he was going to hunt wild hogs. Okay. Not true, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and then he went to a gun shop and bought four more carbine. Where did he get those things? The hardware store? Yeah. Yeah, the hardware store. Okay. And they just trust him to go hunt wild hogs. I mean, yeah. But they're in Texas, so. I mean, things are still like that today. So oh, I yeah. Mean. Yeah. So then he went to a gun shop and bought four more carbine magazines, six more boxes of ammunition, and a can of cleaning solvent for the gun. I'm really not sure why he bought that. <laughs> I really don't know. Yeah, it's like, man, you're not. You're not going to have time clean for them. them. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
I didn't understand. Do you that. think that he went to two different places just to break it up and make it seem a little less suspicious? Probably. He's about to go to a third place. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he went to Sears to buy a Sears model 60 12 gauge semiotic shotgun. Semiotic? Semiotic. Yep. Semi automatic. That's what I mean. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when you said it again, I thought nope, that I was crazy I was joking. That, that was a word. <laughs> no. I realized as I was saying it the okay. second time how Great. stupid I sounded. <laughs> no, it's okay. I told you. I'm going to sound fact dumb. That there was a Sears model. Yeah, of a shotgun. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. Then he went home. <laughs> Great. And then he packed some more things. Are you ready for this list of things? No. You're not. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about it anyway. Great. Um, so he packed a lot of guns. A yeah. Remington 700 6mm bolt action hunting rifle, a 9mm Luger pistol, 35 caliber pump rifle, Gillespie Brescia, not sure what that means, <laughs> 25 caliber pistol, Smith & Wesson M19 357 Magnum revolver. I don't, these are a lot of guns that I don't understand what the purpose of having them all well i'm like why do you need a revolver like Mm-mm. in case like someone gets up like, next to you what 10 magazines for, like is yeah. not enough like yeah so oh yeah gosh. and then he had his two other guns that he just bought yeah and with that shotgun he sawed off the barrel so never good no and he had 700 rounds of ammunition that's so that's absurd much. yeah and then he had food coffee vitamins dexedrine vitamins vitamins yeah dude yeah he took a lot of dexedrine which is a drug excedrin earplugs jugs of water lighter fluid matches rope a machete binoculars three knives transistor transistor radio (laughs) a razor toilet paper and a bottle of deodorant i really don't understand Mm mm-mm like the things of like him planning for the future, like. Mm-hmm. But he knows he's going to die. Yeah, he knows he's going to die, but he needs to make sure he has vitamins. Yeah, earplugs, mm-hmm. deodorant. Like it's like a radio. Like why do you want all these? things? No, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So then he put on a a set of khaki coveralls over his t shirt and jeans, and he was ready to go. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So. Now, uh, we're going into the details of the shooting, and I wrote down everything I could find about the victims, Mm -hmm. and it's really sad, but I feel like their names should be said as Mm -hmm. a remembrance thing, and like talking about their, like saying the little thing I found about each of them. Yeah. So, it's going to take a little bit of time, and it's going to be sad, but we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. So, Charles Whitman arrived at the University of Texas around 11 25 a.m and he used a fake id as a research assistant to get a parking permit permit and then he used the dolly that he had to get all of his equipment and headed towards the main building of the university where the tower was and when he got there the elevator wasn't working and so an employee i think it had to have an employee badge or something to make it work and an employee named vera palmer helped him activate it and he kept saying like thank you ma'am and then repeated you don't know how happy that makes me which that would be scarring to look back at later so he got off on the 27th floor and he had all of his equipment and there was like another flight of stairs he had to go up so he lugged all that up another flight of stairs to a hallway which led to another set of stairs and then he got to the rooms which 
we're around we're surrounded by the observation deck at the very top and that is where he first encountered 51 year old edna elizabeth townsley who was the observation desk observation deck i the amount of times i wrote desk and deck and been am i writing the right word (laughs) the observation deck receptionist and he split the back of her skull and knocked her to the ground with the butt of a rifle and then hit her above her left eye so she was just knocked out at that point okay and then he dragged her behind a couch and like left her there for the time being Mm mm-hmm and then a couple people that had been in the reception area, like in an office or something, they like walked through and their names were Cheryl Botts and Don Walden. And when they saw the guns, so they saw his guns, mm-hmm. they assumed that Charles was going to shoot pigeons. Like that's the assumption they made with all those guns. And Charles just smiled at them and said, hi, how are you? And they went down the elevator. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like they had no idea. They didn't think it was weird that Edna was gone. Like the receptionist yeah. is gone. Like, it was just super it, weird. Like, it's, like, so painful how, like, innocent. And you want people to be good people. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it's so sad. So then after that, Charles pushed a desk over to, like, in front of the doorway of the stairs. And so, like, blocking it, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then a family, MJ and Mary Francis. These are a lot of M names I'm about to put out on you. Okay. <laughs> so MJ is the dad. Mary Francis is the mom. Um, Their last name is Gabor, and they had their two sons with them, Mike and Mark, and they were visiting family in town, Um, MJ's sister, Marguerite, and her husband, William Lamport, and they were just going up to the tower. They wanted to see the university, you know? Yeah. And as they were heading up the stairs to the 27th floor, they, like, walked all the way up the stairs to 27 flights. No, that is commitment. Yeah. So they got up there around 11.45 a.m. And they found the desk pushed in front of the stairs and the two boys pushed past it. And as they did, and one of them was 16, one was 18 or 19. Okay. And as they did that, Charles fired the shotgun at them and hit Mike, who was the younger one, or no, the older one, in the shoulder and Mark in the head, the Mm. 16-year-old in the head. And then Charles fired the gun down the stairs and hit Marguerite and Mary Frances, and William and MJ were further down the stairwell, so they didn't get hit, and they were like, go ask, go get help, like, please, mm-hmm. and so they left, um, they left them there at first, and Mark, who was 16, and a high school student, along with his aunt, Marguerite, were both killed, and Mike, who was 19 and in the Air Force Academy, he was left so injured that he couldn't complete his training for the Air Force, and Ugh. His mom, Mary Frances, was left legally blind and paralyzed from the neck down. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, It's terrible. Yeah. So, after firing at the Gabors and Lamports, Charles Whitman then went and shot Edna Townsley in the head. So, she also did not survive. Mm-hmm. And then he went out onto the observation deck. And one place said that the deck was 231 feet above the ground. I don't actually know. I saw some other heights, so I don't know if it got taller or what, if something's Mm -hmm. happened over the years, but that's what I saw. Okay. Um, And Charles began to shoot from there at 11.48 a.m. And he was just targeting people on the campus, people on the nearby street called um, Guadalupe Street. Uh, And it was also nicknamed The Drag and had a lot of like student hangouts, like bookstores, coffee shops, barbershops. Like that was the place to be and he could get people there. Yeah. So if I say Guadalupe Street, there's several people that got hit over there. So 
The first person shot from the tower was Claire Wilson, and she was an 18-year-old student, and she was with Thomas Frederick Ekman, who was an, also an 18-year-old student, and they were leaving the student union when Claire was shot in the abdomen, and she was actually eight months pregnant, and the baby died. Ugh. Yeah. So, that, the first person shot was, happened to be a pregnant girl. Yeah. So, yeah. She survived, okay. but, the baby but the baby did not. Okay. Yeah. Um, Thomas tried to help Claire when she was first shot and he was shot in the chest and died instantly. So the baby and him both died. It's just so terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (sighs) This is going to be long to get through. So a woman, um, nearby who saw Claire, her name was Rita Star Pattern. What an interesting last name. Love that. Yeah. She laid with Claire for an hour to like comfort her, like through the pain of just seeing all that oh and being in gosh. pain. And then a couple guys, James Love and John Artley Fox and some other people, they like left their safety to help Rita get Claire to safety and to move Thomas's body somewhere else also. Yeah. Oh my goodness. These people, there's a lot of people that like left their yeah. safety to help other people. Ugh. Yeah. Um, Claire remained in the hospital for three months. Yeah. I think she like did give birth to her baby but it was still born like oh, so it's like it's terrible yeah. yeah so now on to the third person shot and it was robert hamilton boyer and he was a 33 year old mathematician and yeah there's so many different age ranges mm-hmm. on in this um he was hit in his lower back i think i think he survived i'm not sure but i think okay. he survived it's hard to tell i think yeah. he survived um and then Devereux Huffman was a 31-year-old PhD student who was shot um, next, and he was shot in the arm, and thankfully he survived. Mm-hmm. And um, a secretary named Charlotte Darishori, she tried to help both of those men, but she also got shot at, and so she started to hide behind a concrete flagpole, and she hid there for an hour and a half, like, the whole time. Yeah. And she thankfully was not injured, but she, like, was trying to help those yeah. two injured people, and... Had to hide. Shout out to that concrete pole for saving yeah. her life for yeah. that. So, next, um, there was a group of Peace Corps volunteers t- named David Matson, Roland Elk, and Thomas Herman. They were all 21, 22 years old, and they were headed to lunch when a bullet hit Matson's wrist and then flew and like hit Elk in his arm, like the shrapnel from it. Yeah. And then a different bullet hit his leg, hit Elk's leg when he was trying to save Matson, like get him to safety. And during all of that, a 64-year-old shopkeeper named Homer J. Kelly tried to help those three men get into like hit into his shop, mm-hmm. and he was hit in the leg with a bullet. But thankfully, all four of these guys survived. Good. But sadly, another one of their friends from the Peace Corps named Thomas Aquinas Ashton, he was on his way to meet them all for lunch. And he was shot in the chest and died. Ugh. So it's just like, they probably were like, we made it. Yeah. Like, it's uh, like painful, but yeah. Now we have Nancy Harvey, a 21-year-old student, and Ellen Evgenides, Evgenides, not sure. And she was a university employee. And they were leaving the tower to go get lunch. I think they were working or in class or something. Mm-hmm. And then they like immediately went back inside because they heard gunshots and then a guard told them it was safe to leave again. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. What the heck? Why would you tell them that? Like, that's just not true. No. And so 
they went out again and they got about a hundred yards away. And then Nancy was shot in the hip and Ellen was hit in her left leg by the shrapnel from that shot. Thankfully, both of them also survived, but I can't even imagine getting shot in the hip. Oh, that'd be no. All of these. I'm just like thinking of where my body that is. Yeah. Thinking how painful Mm -hmm. I can't get over. They probably thought like they were probably just like walking casually because they thought they were safe. Safe. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, I don't know who that guard was, but I don't know why you would be yeah. like, if you don't know what they're talking about, maybe don't be like, oh yeah, you're, you're good. Yeah. What the heck? So then there was 17 year old high school student, Alec Hernandez, and he was delivering newspapers on his bike when he was shot in the leg, but he did survive. Thankfully. A lot of these, I'm just like, mm-hmm. thank God that I get to say that. Yeah. Um, and then there was Karen Griffith, who was also a 17-year-old in high school, and she was shot in her shoulder shoulder and her chest, um, and she and her right lung got hit when that happened, and she died seven days later. Um, and a 24-year-old student named Thomas Ray Carr had tried to help Karen, um, and then he got shot in the spine trying to help her, and he did die an hour later. So it's just a lot of people trying to help yeah other people and it's just also so crazy that one person is doing all this yeah and so far away like yeah yeah freaking like disgusting yeah it really and like such a coward yeah yeah oh and it's just like there's no you can't really get there unless you're already in the building like to stop them no yeah like it's he he knows that he can't like yeah he doesn't want anyone to fight back yeah yeah. People were trying. People yeah. were trying, but like, but and we're gonna there's talk nothing about, you can do, yeah. really. And I do have the information on what happened. Yeah. It's just like, ugh. So now we have David Hubert Gunby, and he was a 23-year-old student who was returning to the library because he forgot a book, and he was shot in his upper left arm, and the bullet went into his abdomen and severed, severed, severed his small intestine. And he had surgery later, and during that surgery, they found out that he only had one functioning kidney functioning kidney from the start, and it got severely injured also. And he was in great pain for the rest of his life, and he ended dialysis in 2001 and died a week later. And his death was the one that was later, and it was ruled as a homicide. Oh, wow. So he was the 15th. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So it's terrible. Yeah. But it's just like... That's, I mean, it it is homicide. Yeah. It's that's, that's just what like insane. It. Yeah, that's like forty years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad that that pain has to be tied to something like that. That his that Charles Whitman's name will hold that. Yeah. To it for the rest. Oh of yeah. Time. Yeah. It's just like. Ugh. And now we have um, Brenda and Adrian Littlefield. They were 18 and 19 years old, and they were nine days into being married. Yeah, they were 18, 19, just married, and they were leaving the tower when Brenda was shot in the hip and Adrian was shot in the back when he bent over her, and they were rescued with David Gunby in an armored car that had, like, gone in to pick people up, so the three of them had been rescued together, and the Littlefields did survive, and, like, um, I'm not sure what else happened, but Mm -hmm. it's just, like, that's so young to be married and then right into marriage. like, most of these people, they're babies. Yeah. It's just so yeah, heartbreaking. This one also. Okay. We're about to get to the part where I almost teared up when I wrote this down. The part just, that I already almost cried I know. when you told me about the lady laying with the girl. Yeah. 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 So 18-year-old Claudia Rutt 
and her boyfriend, Paul Bolton Sontag, um, they ran into their friend, Carla Sue Wheeler, and then they all started to get like shot at. And so they hid behind a construction barricade together. And then suddenly Paul stood up. I have no idea why. And he was shot in the mouth and died instantly. And Carla then tried to restrain Claudia, who was like a a wreck. Yeah. And a bullet went through Carla's hand and hit Claudia in the chest and and Claudia died. And Paul's grandfather, who worked for the news station, learned of his grandson's death as the victim's names were being read that day. I actually think I might. Oh, my gosh. Isn't? Yeah. I can't. No. No. Yeah. I almost, I got yeah. chills as I was saying. That was just so terrible. Oh, I'm just like, yeah. How did that happen? Like, yeah. oh my gosh. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry, just breathe right into the mic. Um, 29-year-old Roy Del Schmidt was an electrician who hid behind his car, but that was like, he was 500 yards away from the tower and he thought, I'm in the clear. And so after 30 minutes, he decided, and he's like, okay, I'm going to try and leave. Mm -hmm. And he was immediately shot in the abdomen. And he was the furthest casualty from the tower. And yeah, Um, a police officer who was 24, Billy Paul Speed, he was one of the first officers on the scene. And they were hiding, him and another officer and some other people were hiding behind this like concrete, like column or something somewhere. Mm -hmm. And there was a gap in between this thing somewhere and he got shot through that and he died later in the hospital. Goodness. Yeah. Um, Harry Walchuk was a 38-year-old PhD student who was leaving a magazine store on Guadalupe Street and he was hit in the chest and killed. It's just like people were going about their daily lives. They have no idea what's happening. And it's all... Yeah. I think like it being like a university and just like it's like... People are working and like going to class, going to class, going to and work, studying, and yeah. yeah, it's just like seeing their friends. Yeah, and then thirty-five-year-old basketball coach Billy Snowden thought he was out of range, like Roy Schmidt, and he was shot in the shoulder in the doorway of a barber shop, and he was over five hundred yards away, and he survived, but he was technically the furthest person to be shot. Wow. Over 500 yards away. That I'm not good at identifying lengths. No, especially yards. No, offense. But that's a lot. <laughs> but that's far. That's more than five football fields, I think. Because isn't a football field 100 yards, roughly? Yes. Yeah. Derek, take that out of the <laughs> <laughs> I was in marching band. I should know that. I think that's true. There's a lot of yards anyway. Okay. My dad helps me out. <laughs> If I sound dumb, he's looking out for us. Okay. I'm glad we had a little dumb (laughs) moment. Derek is our fact checker now. (laughs) And we didn't even know. Okay. Anyway, back to the sad stuff. I'm glad we had a little fun moment of me being stupid, but okay. Um, So several more students. Um, 21-year-old Sandra Wilson exchange student 26-year-old Abdul Kashab and his fiance 20-year-old Janet Paolos. They were all shot on Guadalupe Street. I think they all survived. Um, 21-year-old Lana Phillips was also, like she also thought she was out of range and she was shot and injured in her shoulder, but she survived. And 21-year-old Oscar Royvella and Irma Garcia, they were dating at the time. They were near Hog Auditorium and they 
did serve. They were shot. They were shot there and they did survive because two students, Jack Pennington and Jack Stevens pulled them to a safe place. Jack and Jack. Shout out to the Jacks. Um, question mm-hmm. for like the people that were around that thought they were out of range. Mm-hmm. Could they all like tell that it was coming from the tower? I think, I think people could figure it out. Okay. Like where it was coming. Yeah. yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. Like I'm sure like the police figured it out and stuff, yeah. but I just didn't know if like the average I'm sure, person, I think some, I mean, obviously I think a lot of them like took time to process before leaving. Mm-hmm. They were like, it's happening there. There's no way. Right. Yeah. Like I think a lot of them were yeah. like, I'm so, I, why would they know where I am? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And people curious. were probably just like, my good luck. Right. Like mm-hmm. I can just make it, you know? Yeah. I might would maybe have that thought process. I could see myself like, yeah. I mean, you have no idea yeah. how like that. It's a sniper. And like, sometimes you're just like, sometimes you have to take the risk. Sometimes you just have to try. And go. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Um, Avelino Esperanza was a 26 year old carpenter who was shot in his left arm near his shoulder, which then shattered the bone. But thankfully he survived because his uncle and brother pulled him to safety. It's just like, out. I can't. Shattered the bone. Yeah. I don't know how, and he was a carpenter. So like his body is his livelihood. Yeah. Like, which I know it's a lot of people's, but it's like, I can't. No. Um, A Marine veteran and press reporter named Robert Hurd was shot in the arm. I think he survived um 18 year old student john scott allen was looking through a window in the student union towards the tower when a bullet hit the window and then a second shot went through it and hit the an artery in his right arm Ew. like i'm just like that seems so specific yeah like he just he probably could see in that window and like oh i think he survived most of these if i, I think i wrote down if i knew for sure yeah. that they died mm-hmm. so i yeah. Um, a funeral funeral director, Morris Homan, was 30 years old, and he used the ambulance from his funeral home to go get victims out of the scene and to take them to the hospital. And while he was doing this, he was shot in his right leg on Guadalupe Street. And later he recalled this, quote, I laid there for about 40 to 45 minutes listening to two construction workers arguing about who was going to expose themselves to rescue me. Yeah, he did survive, obviously. Oh my god! But it's just like, can you imagine? I mean, and I wouldn't blame him. No, the amount of people that they're seeing just try to save people and getting hurt. Yeah, it's like, do you have kids? Like a wife and kids? Like, yeah, it's such a hard thing. That's heart wrenching. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't blame them. No, yeah. So it's just, and like, also ugh. for them to like, they wanted to save him. Yeah, they were just like, it's like, what do we do? Yeah, yeah. it's also like we could all just wind up yeah. dead. You know. Ugh. We're getting close to the end of this okay. terribly sad and horrible thing. Okay. Um, two women, Della or Dea, she's Hispanic, so it's probably Dea. Uh, it has two L's, so I was just like, wait. And Marina Martinez, they were visiting from Monterey, Mexico, and they were both injured by bullet fragments. Um, they survived. And then F.L. Foster and Robert Freed were hurt in the crossfire between people shooting from the ground and Charles Whitman shooting down from the tower. It's just like, yeah. Yeah. So at that point, people were trying to stop yeah. him, obviously. Um, 30-year-old student Dolores Ortega was cut on the back of her head, and people weren't sure if it was a direct hit or if it was flying glass that hit her and cut the back of her head. How do they not know? I have no idea. I mean, I guess if, if it, it like, just, like, grazed her. Yeah. Okay. So unsure but i feel like yeah i don't know enough about 
bullets to know that. Me neither. But I mean, I feel like that's something that maybe now they would be able to tell yeah, the difference. But in the 60s, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. And the last person that I have by a name that was injured was named C.A. Stewart. And I don't know if anything about them. Like, I didn't see any Mm -hmm. information, but they were injured during the time from, like, the chaos, but they were not shot. Okay. But they got injured in, like, Mm -hmm. what was happening somehow. That was everyone. It's a lot. Yeah. And terrible and horrific that these people had to go through this Mm -hmm. and other families had to go through this. So now I have the perspective of, like, the people mm-hmm. around and the police of like what they did to, okay. s- to end this. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people thought the sounds of the gunshots originally were from construction nearby. Yeah. Which there's always construction around universities yeah. at this point. So it's like, yeah. Um, and some people thought that people falling on the ground were part of an anti-war protest or part of a theater group. Oh yeah. Um, one all of, the- of it is like, all of that is, very plausible yeah uh one of the victims said that a person had seen her on the ground and told her to get up while she's bleeding on the ground it's just like they don't know yeah yeah and it's like that like person was shot yeah but she's probably in shock so she can't say anything i'm just like what do you say like Yeah. yeah and they might not even know what happened to them yeah at first yeah so there were still plenty there were a lot of people who bravely risked their own safety to try and save those who were around them that were injured already. Like I said, um, an armored car and ambulances were trying to get to them and get the wounded people. Um, the first person to call the Austin Police Department was a history professor who called at 11.52 a.m., which was four minutes after the shooting began. So mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Yeah. All this happened, like 96 minutes is so long. Yeah. But some of these things happen so fast, like together. Like, oh, yeah. And so it's just like, well, and I mean, strange. They didn't have cell phones. Like, he had to get to a phone. Oh, yeah. Like, and to keep in mind, like, rapid response wasn't really a thing yet. Like, mm. it's just like they didn't have, they weren't able this to. This also quick. was, this might have been before 911 even existed. Yeah. I'm not they sure. had to have the police department. I'm pretty number. sure I looked it up for the Joan Reish case, and I'm pretty sure it was like, it didn't start being widespread until like the seventies. Mm, then yeah. So yeah. So eleven fifty two. The police were contacted. Um and then the police officer, Billy Speed, that I mentioned before, he was one of the first ones to get there and he was unfortunately shot and killed. And then this next thing feels very Texas. Um Officer Houston McCoy was twenty six and he first heard of the shooting over his radio. And then he tried to find a way into the tower. And that's when a student came up to him and was like, hey, I can help. I have a rifle at home. So the police officer took him to his home so they could grab his rifle. What? Yeah. <laughs> but I was just like, how, like, hey, dude, come with me. I got a rifle. Like, it feels very Wild West. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Houston McCoy comes back. He is okay. one of the people that st- helped stop Whitman. Good. Um, so then there was... Oh, 911 was invented in 1968. Whoa. There's a lot of stuff that happened because of this. I was just looking it up. Yeah. Because I wanted to make sure I was so close. close. <laughs> yeah. Smart. <laughs> fact checking. <laughs> fact checking on the air. <laughs> so, um, 40-year-old retired Air Force gunner named, um, Alan Crum. C-R-U-M. Okay. Crum. I'm going to refer to these guys a lot by their last names because there's too many for me to remember their full names. That's fine. Um, But anyway, he managed the university bookstore co-op and he had actually seen the incident with 
the 17 year old Alec Hernandez who had gotten hurt while writing his newspaper route. Mm -hmm. And he like went over there trying to stop. He thought that he was seeing people getting in a fight that were trying to help him. Like he thought they were like beating this kid up. And then he got over there and realized that he was shot. And then he like just started going into work mode and he started to reroute traffic to get away from the shooting. Yeah. Oh. And then he couldn't make it back to his store safely, so he headed towards the tower to try and offer his help to the police. And once he got there, he was placed with the Department of Public Safety agent named, his nickname was Dub, okay. <laughs> Dub Cowan, and also an officer named Jerry Day. And they went up the elevator and they gave him a rifle. So these men, they were going up there. Yeah. And then... Officer Ramiro Ray Martinez, um, he got off duty around noon and got and went home and then saw everything on the news. And so he like called his department and they were like, go help direct traffic on campus, like to get people away from there. And then he got there and other people were already doing that. Mm-hmm. And so then he headed towards the tower. Um, and when he got it, he went up to the 27th floor pretty immediately and that's where he thought more people were going to be up there and he only saw Cowan, Day, and Crum. So those three original guys. Um, Lots of the officers were trying to get to the tower but they just had to keep taking cover because they were getting shot at. Um, But one group was making their way underground in maintenance tunnels to get to the tower and that included Officer Houston McCoy and the guy with the gun with getting the rifle yeah and they the, had some the civili- kid with his rifle yeah they had some civilians with them mm-hmm. you know maybe that guy was there i don't know his name okay yeah don't know that kid's name mccoy that kind of makes me think of hannah montana with that song okay yeah yeah i don't know <laughs> sorry anyway oh he could be the one that's the song <laughs> but anyway trying to bring some little is it he to- could be the one i thought it was a different one. Oh no you're right it was um the ayaz song <laughs> We've been watching Hannah Montana, everyone. <laughs> yeah, it was the song with Ayas. It's been anyway. our palate cleanser after scary stuff. Anyway, okay, back to the case. So we're getting there. We're getting to the end of this, and okay. I'm very ready. So um, there were a lot of officers and, civili- and civilians with guns on the ground trying to shoot up at Whitman. So he was, like, staying low up there, trying to mm-hmm. keep firing at people, which is so terrible. Um. The police also sent a small plane and a sharpshooter up, but they had to be turned back a bit because Charles was shooting at them too. Yeah. But they were able to like maintain like a circle of him at a distance. So that did kind of start to limit his freedom of where he could shoot on the ground. That's good. So that did something. And then Martinez, officers Martinez, Day, and then they had Crum, the Marine, the Mm ex-Marine or veteran um they were all searching the 27th floor and that's where they found mj the dad of that one family and officer day took him down like got him out of the building and that's when martinez started to head towards the observation deck and crumb asked him to deputize him before and then he's like i'll cover you but yeah can you just do that i don't know okay no idea and also like what's the point at this point (laughs) yeah anyway yep um then Martinez found the rest of the Lamports and the Gabor family. And um, Mike, the son, one of the sons, he was the one who pointed towards the deck and said, he's out there. Ugh. So I told him where he was. Uh, Martinez got to the deck first and he made Crumb stay at the door. And then officers McCoy and Day got there right after. So they came back um, and Crumb accidentally fired his rifle. So no. yeah. 
So then Whitman started to look around towards the south yeah. of the tower because he was like trying to figure out where that came from. And that happened around 1.24 p.m. And that's when Martinez and McCoy went around the northeast corner and Martinez fired in that direction of Charles. I think he fired like 12, six to 12 rounds. He missed every shot. I know. Dude. I know. And, but then McCoy saw Charles's head over like a light thing. And so he started to fire at him that direction. And he hit Charles in between his eyes with a few pellets. And that killed him immediately. Um, McCoy continued to fire into the left side of Whitman's body. Just like make sure. And then Martinez grabbed McCoy's shotgun and fired right into Charles's left arm. So they were just like, we are making sure this yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, and Martinez was actually almost shot by people on the ground because they couldn't tell that it oh, wasn't so Whitman got, up there. Yeah. But eventually, like, he wasn't actually Good. shot. But it was close. So that's how that ended. So now we're going to talk about Charles's death and medical history a bit mm-hmm. to kind of understand why I'm, my therapist was intrigued. But yeah, yeah, because of the psychology and like yeah. medical stuff. Um, so investigators discovered that Charles had visited a few UTA physicians that year before the shooting. He had even been given some medication. Mm-hmm. Um, he had seen a minimum of five doctors in the fall and winter of 1965. And then he saw a psychiatrist, but that psychiatrist did not give him a prescription. I, I'm wondering if the reason they didn't like do a brain scanner, I think, was just because it was a university. Like, I have no idea. I'm looking it up. Yeah. Um, and then he was given a prescription for Valium by someone named Jan Cockrum. I don't really know what her qualifications are. Um, CT scanners weren't invented till 67. Okay. Wow. These so. things would have been helpful a little bit sooner. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so Charles was given Valium. Mm-hmm. And then the person that gave him Valium suggested that he go see the campus psychiatrist. Okay. And so Charles met the staff psychiatrist for the University of Texas Health Center named Maurice Dean Heatley on March 29th, 1966. Um, Charles actually mentioned the doctor in this appointment in his suicide note. And he wrote, quote, I talked with a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears that I felt some overwhelming violent impulses. After one visit, I never saw the doctor again and since then have been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. So he wrote that. Interesting. Well, not going back. Yeah. was you Like, he can't chase you down. Yeah. Yeah. So now Dr. Heatley also had written notes about this appointment because that's what they do. Yeah. And this is what he wrote. Quote, this massive muscular youth. <laughs> what a weird thing to start That's with. Very, yeah. Uh, <laughs> just imagining my therapist yeah. <laughs> like, describing me, basically. Tiny, non-muscular. <laughs> Weakling. <Yeah>. Youth. <laughs> anyway. Um, this massive muscular youth seemed to be oozing with hostility. That something seemed to be happening to him and that he didn't seem to be himself. He readily admits having overwhelming periods of hostility with a very minimum of provocation. Repeated inquiries attempting to analyze his exact experiences were not too successful, with the exception of his vivid reference to thinking about going up on the tower with a deer rifle and start shooting people. So it's like, 
this guy, he told his plan to this guy. Yeah. Like what he wanted to do. Which, and like you said, people didn't really know to be, but if that's your job, you should know to be looking out That's the one that. thing that therapists can, like, yeah. and psychiatrists can break their, like, yeah. confidentiality. confidentiality yeah. is if people are going to hurt themselves or others. Yeah. He literally wrote that down. Oh my gosh. So that's where I'm like, you could have done, something yeah. might have been able to yeah. be done. Like at least he should have like had an extended stay somewhere. Oh yeah, like, definitely. That's, he clearly, he was asking for some help. Yeah. He was just like, something's wrong with me. So it's like, this dude knew, like he's not a good person, Yeah, but he knew something was wrong with him. He did still choose to do these things. Like, he still had them and, like, yes. didn't. It's very, like, it's a very weird. He kind of just gave up on pushing back on it, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's like he's not insane. Yeah. He's, like, sane and in his right mind and he chose to do this. But, like. Yeah. It's a very mental. He might Mental stuff might have yeah. been going on. Yeah. It's very, it makes you feel really weird. Like, yeah. I feel very weird about all of it. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the autopsy. Didn't have like a ton of stuff, but like mm-hmm. these are the important things that were discovered. So the initial, also this happened really fast. Um, the initial tox, toxicology report was delayed on Charles's body because he was embalmed on August 1st. What? Yeah. When his body was taken to the Cook Funeral Home in Austin. Even though he had prescription drugs and was in possession of dexedrin, which is an amphetamine, when he died. So he literally was embalmed that day at first. Huh? Yeah. That's absurd. Yeah. That day. I, I have no words. I know. The What is about to all happen, all happen within like five days. Okay. So that was the day. And then Charles's dad approved of the autopsy that his son had requested. After he was embalmed? Yeah. He approved of the autopsy. Um, the autopsy was performed the next day, August 2nd, by Coleman de Chenar. Chen- it's a very fancy sounding name. Um, he was a neuropathologist at Austin State Hospital. Um, they tested his blood and urine for traces of substances, and Shinar found a pecan-sized brain tumor that he labeled as an astrocytoma, and had and it had some signs of necrosis. But overall, he determined that the tumor had no effect on Charles Whitman's actions. And then. John Connolly, who was the Texas governor at the time, commissioned a task force to go over the autopsy conclusions, and they wanted to compare that with everything that Charles did. Mm-hmm. Um, this com- this committee um, included psychiatrists, pathologists, psychologists, neurosurgeons, and even included that Maurice Heatley that had talked to him and like okay. heard all that. Yeah. So they were all on this. Um, they did determine that the toxicology p- report showed nothing significant. And then they examined the brain tumor, other brain tissue, and anything else that was still available for testing from the autopsy. On August 5th, they had a three-hour hearing, and the commission determined that Shinar's findings were incorrect, and that the tumor had features of a glioblastoma multiform with lots of necrosis, and a, quote, remarkable vascular component that had the nature of a small congenital vascular malformation. So... Sounds a little bit more than something that didn't do anything. Like they were what, like, uh, what I don't is know. necrosis? <laughs> I think it's like death, like That's dying cells. Thought. Yeah, it's dying like dying cells. cells. Okay. Yeah. So they were like, it's a more, it's not just a benign okay. thing. Yeah. Also, I don't know how big a pecan is. <laughs> it's a little nut, you know? I know it's a little nut. I, I mean, our brains how- are pretty small though. 
That's true. So that's I don't probably eat pretty pecans, big. So Me neither. Really, like I can't picture one. No. Just imagine. Just imagine. Make Just it imagine. up. Just I'm pick, making it up. Decide what size you want it to be. Okay. <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah. I don't understand any of that. But okay. No. But I think basically the guy that did the They're autopsy saying, was like. Yeah. It he was said it was. One benign. type of tumor. Yeah. And they were like, it's much worse. Like it's a, it is a little bit worse of a tumor. Like, yeah, basically they're concluding that it was somehow impeding his normal brain function. Kind of. Okay. They're kind of split on this. Okay. So the psychiatrist on that were commissioned said that quote, the relationship between the brain tumor and Whitman's actions cannot be established with clarity. However, the tumor conceivably could have contributed to his inability to control his emotions and actions. But then the neuropathologist and neurologist determined that, quote, the application of existing knowledge of organic brain function does not enable us to explain the actions of Whitman on August 1st. So they were like, that doesn't make sense to us. Okay. So it's I would fun. agree more with the first one that it's like it could, but like we don't yeah. know. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Um, forensic and... Invi- my, because my opinion's very yeah. important. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, I guess the the psychiatrist knows more about emotions and like they pay more attention to that stuff and the neurologist and stuff, they're kind of like they focus on, I don't know, what the brain is doing exactly. I don't know. It's just like... It's so weird. I don't understand the brain. Like he could conceivably have like I, I don't know. It's I so know. it's so confusing. I know. Forensic investigators were theorizing about this, and they kind of think that the tumor was pressing against the amygdala, which is a part of the brain that relates to the fight or flight response and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So people are all over. There's people that say it's not doing anything, and people that are saying it might have done. It might yeah. have. They, no one said for sure yeah. it was the reason why he did this, but. But it could have made it worse. Yeah. Yeah. So, which he did always have terrible headaches. Mm -hmm. So that probably didn't help. At least if, if, if the very least it just gave him terrible headaches and migraines, that can be bad for your mental health. (laughs) Like always being in pain is not. If you're always in pain, you're taking amphetamines. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, it definitely didn't help him. I don't know what it did, but it didn't Mm -hmm. help him in any way. Um, so just to end this out. I have a little bit about his funeral, but I don't really care. It's just okay. kind of something that was weird about it. Okay. And then I have about like memorials and legacies of everyone else. Good. So Charles Lippman had a joint Catholic funeral with his mother that he killed. With his mother? Yep. But not his wife. Yeah. Which I'm not sure, that he should be no. with either of them. Yeah. With his mother in Lake Worth, Florida. And it happened on August 5th, 1966. The day that that hearing happened about... Why is that so fast? I know. Oh my but gosh. He was but, buried with his mom. Um, that's weird. And he was buried with military honors and his casket had an American flag draped over it since he was a veteran. Are you kidding me? Nope. Yep. That happened. That yeah. makes me sick. I know. And they were both buried in Florida's Hillcrest Memorial Park together. Ugh. I'm like, I don't think his mom wants to be buried with him, to be honest. No. I don't think anyone wants to be And he should not be buried with military honors. No. Ugh. Oh my gosh. But that was about him. Okay. So let's just put him away. He's in the ground. Yeah. Good. (laughs) So, um, this is kind of the aftermath of everything. Police procedures nationally were impacted by this mass casualty. And this is kind of when SWAT teams were starting to be created all over because they were like, we don't have any way to respond to this yeah. well, you mm-hmm. know? 
um, media coverage on site also became pretty standard at this point. And obviously a lot of people contribute this to why more of these things have started happening because they get attention. Yeah. So about the building itself, the tower, um, the observation deck was closed and the bullet holes were repaired and it reopened in 1968, but then closed again in 1975 after four suicides. Wow. Yeah. It did open again in 1999 after security features like a stainless steel lattice were added. And now people only by appointment and guided tours are allowed up there. And there are metal detectors that everyone has to go through. Good. Yeah. Um, a memorial garden was dedicated for those who died or were affected by the shootings in 2006. And a list of all the victims names was added on a monument in 2016 in the garden and that it was on the 50th anniversary and on that day the tower's clock also stopped for 24 hours starting at 11:48 a.m Ugh. yeah and the city of austin made the name of the day be ramiro martinez day one of the police officers mm-hmm. so um in 2014 the stillborn son of Claire Wilson was given a tombstone in Austin Memorial Park Cemetery and has a single cross and says, Baby Boy Wilson, August 1st, 1966. Baby boy. Yeah. Oh, I know. Um, as for the officers involved, Martinez and McCoy were awarded with Medals of Valor and the following names were later placed on a plaque outside the Austin Police Precinct in 2008. Um, officers Billy Paul Speed, who was the only one on there that died. Mm-hmm. Um, Philip Connor, Jerry Day, Ramiro Martinez, Houston McCoy, Harold Moe, George Shepard, and Milton Showquist, and then Department of Public Safety Agent William Dub Cowan Jr., um, Police Lieutenant Marion Lee, and civilians Alan Crum, Frank Holder, William Wilcox, and Jim Boutwell. So, wow. That was a long one. Yeah. That's all I have. But it's... But... Yeah. Ugh. That one's very, I mean, very rough, but the the tumor thing is very interesting. Yeah. And no one knows. And it's, I just kind of wish they could have the technology that we have now. Yeah. And the medical knowledge we have now Mm -hmm. to really, like, I wish they could see that and, like, understand. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to look at the records of it, Mm -hmm. but it's just, like, you know. And it's just so, like, like, there are tumors that, like, can impact, like, people's, Mm -hmm. like, everything yeah so it's just like it's it's very plausible yeah but but it's like it's, he still chose to do it yeah and so it's like and he still did it all yeah it makes you feel so conflicted it's very weird yeah he i mean either way he's very guilty yeah so so but <sighs> wow yeah i don't know how to end that no <laughs> go listen to some taylor swift guys yeah <laughs> tell her katie sent you yep <laughs> They're besties, you know. Uh-huh. Anyway. Um, what's your favorite song off of Ride, Katie? I can never pick one. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you my top four. <laughs> okay. In no particular order. Okay. Depends on the day. Um, All Too Well, obviously. State of Grace, Holy Ground, and Begin Again. Okay. They I, all make me feel things. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. They're good. Also... Everything has changed with Ed Sheeran. I always liked that song, but when I listened to the re-recorded version, I was like, dang, they sound really good on this song. I really liked that. They that sounded, was always my favorite. They sounded so mature, and I was like, I really like this for like the newer version of it a lot. Mm-hmm. So, And it's a good song. So everyone just go listen. Oh, <laughs> and the new Phoebe Bridgers one with her. That one, 
I was like, ouch, that hurt. Like that feels relatable. So anyway, everyone, you can DM me about this if you want. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, you guys should follow us on the things and also you can DM Katie on at something sick podcast on Instagram. (laughs) So that backwards on TikTok at nope. I'm I'm out of whack. On Twitter. On Twitter. I almost said our Twitter thing too with TikTok. On Twitter at a sick podcast. On TikTok. On TikTok at something sick podcast. Or send us an email at something sick podcast at gmail.com. Episode 39 and you can't get the outro. That was the first time I've ever messed that up. I just want that to be said. Yeah. You did great. It's it was a long one, okay? (laughs) Yeah. Anyways. Um we will talk to you next time, homies. Peace out.